1: The hallmark of this message is going to be the bedrock of our faith. And I want to talk to you about that from God's Word so that we would not be, in a sense, influenced by the cults. Now, I want to be careful because I know that we live in a culture on the island that there's a lot of, you know, live and let live. There's a lot of aloha. There's a lot of, I don't want to offend anyone. There's a lot of, I love you, you, you do what you want, let me do what I want. But that's not only on the island. We who live on the island, we see that, but that's getting to be pretty much all over the world. In fact, it's even in the United States Constitution that we have the freedom of religion and the expression of that religion, even if that religion is contrary to what God's word has to say. So while we have that freedom to express our belief system, whatever it might be, and we have a culture that tolerates this, we as Christians, though, still need to realize that what we believe, in fact, is the truth, And as we move about and have our being here on the island, that we would not just see ourselves as one of a multiplicity of religions and belief systems. And so it's important for us to know that. Let me try to quickly give you what an explanation of a cult is. And this will be more of a layman's understanding of it, because you hear that word thrown out. The word cult, regardless of what that means, it is explained this way. It is a belief system, as it comes against Christianity, that either has a founder or a a, a prophet or the one who started that religion, and that person believes that on some level they are equal to Jesus Christ. And so they believe that they have as much of a word for us today as Jesus Christ would. Or a cult would take Jesus Christ and say that, yes, he is a mighty God. Jesus Christ is a significant figure, and there's supernaturalness around Christ, But he himself is not all God. So, in some measure, a cult will diminish the person of Christ or will raise up a human founder to the level of Christ. That's one aspect of a cult. The second aspect of a cult would say something like this they would say that they have significant writing that comes through what they might refer to as inspiration. Now, how they receive that inspiration could come through some angels, some glasses, could be some special way, but they claim that they have writing that is on the same level of scripture. They then begin to build their belief system often on their own writing. What also is interesting is a lot of that writing that they have seems to also bleed into what they have extrapolated from God's word. So there's an amalgamation of God's word. Bottom line again is they've either raised their writing, human writing, to a level of supernatural writing of the Bible or what they have done is taken God's word and they've reduced it to the same level as human writing. In both cases, Christ and God's word has been stripped of its sufficiency and that's really the bottom line of a cult. So as you hear about different religions out there, one of the first places you can go is what do they think of Jesus Christ and at what level is their founder or some leader today in relationship to Christ? Secondly, is their writings. Is it on the same level of scripture or is it less than scripture and you have the supremacy of scripture? So if you're thinking today that I'm picking on any particular cult, I'm really not. I'm just trying to, for today's, talk about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Now I'm looking at our young people and as they go out into the world and they begin to experience various religions and as they're taught what they need to believe, I want them to be so equipped to know that what they believe is true and that Jesus Christ is supreme. Now, to do that, they don't have to stand in a corner with a megaphone screaming at people that they believe that Jesus Christ is supreme. But at the same time, I want them to be so strong that they do not compromise their conviction. Now, to do that, listen carefully, young people. I want you to face the world, whatever school you go to, whatever job you go to, whether you go in the military, when you really have more freedom to move about in society, that you are strong, not on your parents' faith and not on your pastor's faith, and perhaps not even on the founding fathers of of Christianity's faith, but that you have a rock-solid understanding of what you believe and why you believe it so much so that you can cast down even the wrong teaching of other cults so that you have confidence in your belief system. But married to that would be the same love that Jesus Christ has for those even when they're wrong. So today we're going to talk about the supremacy of Christ. It's the very essence of our faith, but it also happens to be the battleground of Jesus Christ in all of Christianity. If you lived many years ago in the country of Albania, The Albanian premier there wanted to make Albania the premier communist country. And you know communism has no place for religion. But he was so adamant about it, he went through every cemetery that was in the country of Albania. And he knocked down any image of any cross in any of the particular monuments that were there. It was not only forbidden to be a part of Christianity, you weren't just locked up, you were murdered if you embraced Christianity in any fashion whatsoever. And so there is a belief system in this world in which we live that really hates Jesus Christ. So those of us who claim to be Christians and we have a somewhat Christian country and the freedom to express our Christianity, we need to be careful that we don't get um, apathetic in our belief. And we get so much that we just enjoy life in America that we forget that we're to be about kingdom building and that we're to will, be willing to lay down our life. And this is so very important. This passage that we're going to study today, if I could pick any passage, this would be the premier p- passage that would talk about the supremacy of Christ. Now, Christ is mentioned from the Old Testament to the New Testament. If you got into the Old Testament, you're going to see the preparation of Christ coming. You move then to the Gospels and you see then Christ coming in a special way. So He's presented. Then in the gospel, in in Acts, he's proclaimed. And then when you get into the epistles, then you see the personification. In other words, Christ living his life out through us. So he's personified in our life. When you get to Revelation, then you see the predomination of Christ where now he sets up his real rule on this earth and wipes away all other belief system and he becomes the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So the Bible has a red thread going through it from Genesis to Revelation. In fact, it's so much tied together. that There's a true story in the Bible of a man coming out of Egypt, Ethiopia. And while he was traveling in the desert, he stopped his chariot and he was reading his Bible then and he was reading in Isaiah. When he got there, he scratched his head and he didn't understand Isaiah. God in his sovereignty brought an evangelist up to him and spoke to him. And right there, beginning at Isaiah, he preached to him using Isaiah and showed him Jesus Christ in it. And that Ethiopian came to faith in Christ And then became identified through baptism and went on with his life for God. So I'm going to tell you that the bedrock of our faith is what I'm going to be speaking on today. And I'm passionate about it. I am excited about this. This is why I have confidence in what I believe and in my eternal future. And I pray that it will be a blessing to you. So Jesus Christ is supreme because. And I'm going to give you four main reasons from this passage because they come out so easily as we go verse by verse. So number one, Jesus Christ is deity. Jesus Christ is deity. If you just read the simple part of that verse, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, many different people might have their belief system of who Christ is, but it's important for us to know what the Bible has to say. That one phrase alone, He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. It destroys all false teaching about Christ in God, because now it says who He really is. At the same time, it discloses exactly the God of the Bible and how Christ and God are equal to one another and how important they are in their togetherness as being one. And so Christ answers that with two important issues. Here he goes. Number one, Christ is the image of the invisible God. I want to speak about that word image for a moment. When you hear the word image, you might think of, well, that's kind of like a likeness. It's kind of like a logo. He's a logo of God. Well, he's not just a logo of God. The word image in the Greek means he's an exact likeness. In fact, it means that Christ represents God to us when he was on the earth. But at the same time of representing him, he's not only a spokesman for God. He is also manifesting God. So he represents him but he also manifests God. So when you're looking at Christ, you're looking at what God would look like as you're looking at Christ, especially as you see him operate in scripture. Look at the verse from John. This will show you how that the world recognized him as who he claimed to be. Jesus said, I and my father are one. Why? Because they're equal. It says, then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. And Jesus said, look, many good works I've shown you from my father. I've done this for my father. For which of these works are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered and said, For a good work, we don't stone you. We're not stoning you for the good deeds you're doing. We're stoning you because you're speaking blasphemy because you are claiming as a man to be yourself, God. And so even those people knew right then that he was claiming to be God, and that's exactly what he's saying. I am God. So if we want to look at God, we can look at Christ. And there's a few other verses, but let's look at the second reason we can believe that Jesus Christ is deity. Christ is above all things. He is above all things whether it's a belief system of humanism or any other belief system other than faith alone in Christ alone for the glory of God alone. And so he is above all things. He is the firstborn above all things. I think that's important. When you read the word firstborn, sometimes we look at that and we say, hmm, firstborn, that must mean that you have he's the firstborn and then you have a secondborn and a thirdborn and a fourthborn and it goes on down the line. Now listen carefully to this. We do know that Jesus Christ did have brothers. We know that in the gospel. But what's important to know that those brothers weren't his total flesh brothers. They were just half brothers. And so in a sense, he was the firstborn. Now, it's not referring so much to chronological order, meaning he's the firstborn and then the secondborn. Firstborn here means that he ranks above all other brothers things that were born, all other people that were born, anything that was born, He is the firstborn. He is God, all one. You can't be both firstborn and onlyborn. We know in Scripture He's known as the only begotten Son. He can't be both creator and then the created one. He can only be creator. And so we see Him in a distinct fashion. Now let's look at number two. Not only is He deity, and there's a lot we could speak about who He is as God, but we need to see that Christ is superior to His creation. We live on an island that creation seems to be Um, looked upon as almost um, a a worshipped item. Before Carol and I moved here, we were coming back and forth to this island here, Oahu, since 1975. As a little child, I grew up listening to the uh, Hawaiian music, some of it then went hapahaole music, if you know what that is. It's kind of half Hawaiian and half secular, kind of putting it together. And we would listen to that music growing up as a boy. I don't know why, but we just had it playing in the house a lot. And then when we were coming in the 70s and then in the 80s, We tried to get as many Christian records and cassettes and tried to find it to be able to listen to radio stations. Couldn't find much in the 70s and 80s. It wasn't until the late 90s that we found a show called Aloha Joe that was on the internet that we could go to it and then have it actually piped into our computer and then listen to it in the late 90s and the early 2000s. And we would listen to the music. One of the things I liked about the music is I certainly loved the melody. I loved listening to the music because it was such a happy music, melee. It was so beautiful. Carol and I would have our spirits uplifted when we would listen to the music. And then we listen as we listen to Hawaiian music compared to whether it's Mexican music or Spanish music or other kind of music. They would sing a lot of songs, maybe even some love songs. But when you'd listen to Hawaiian music, listen to how many songs are written about the love the people have for their land, how much they love the beautiful sunsets, how they love the rainbows, and they sing about our valleys and the, and the beautiful waterfalls. They talk about each island and the uniqueness of the islands. And so after a while, we could be lulled into a sense of the beauty of this island, which we should be. As a Christian, we look at this and we say, ah, what a great God we have that's created this. And often that would cause me to go that way. But after a while, I got thinking, man, this is such a beautiful place. And if we're not careful, we soon then, by Satan, could be tempted to worship the created more than we worship the creator, If you go back in the cultural history of the Hawaiian people, you're going to find much of this is going to be a worship, a literal worship of the land. This last week, we were watching uh, the news, and they were talking about the volcano that's erupting on the big island. Have you all been following that story? Have you been seeing how it's been happening? And as I've been watching that, some of the commentators would say, Ah, Mighty Pele, or Madam Pele, is now spewing forth her lava. Now, I have to tell you that it's highly likely that those uh, announcers were just talking about some cultural historical things, and and that's because of Hawaiian people who one time believed in Pele, and it's good for us to know what they believed and how they saw things and all of that. That's interesting to note that. But when we move it back to there really is a Pele, there really is a god of fire, and we need to be careful that we do not trample upon the mana here, because we could have some terrible things that come against us. I think what's happened then, we look at the beautiful creation that God has given to us and we have been moved away from. There is no Pele, folks. It's a historical belief system that is wrong. There is a true God. And this true God did create this beautiful world, including volcanic action. He's created beautiful water in the hydrological cycle where the water gets evaporated up into the clouds. And then at a certain time, as that mixes together... With dust particles. And you have the right amount of equation. It brings the rain. And the rain comes sometimes heavily. And because God has created the beautiful. polys, Plural. All over our island. It will gather in crevices. And gorgeous free falling waterfalls will be there. Multiple like strands on a beautiful head of hair of a woman. We'll see all of that. But this wasn't created by some earth God, some existential being. It is created by the only God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as I look at all of this, I want to respect the cultures of people and I want to love them even though they may be wrong. And I will come alongside them and I will not denigrate them. But at the same time, I cannot accept a belief system that in any way diminishes the reality of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. So, we believe that He is supreme over all creation. And to do that, I would like to give you four other reasons from this passage now why we see Him as supreme over creation and how significant that He is. Number one, Christ created all things. Now, we can open up the scientific books. We can talk to those that have done a great deal of study and you will find them come up with all sorts of answers to the issue of how did this world begin. Obviously to prepare a message like this I had to review some of the things that I studied in seminary, some of the things that I was taught growing up. I've taken the same science classes like you have and I I, you know there's certain things in, in education that I enjoy. I do enjoy science. I enjoy history. I enjoy world geography. I do enjoy English sometimes. I really struggle with mathematics, I have to tell you, I struggle with math and Algebra and all of that. So if you struggle with that, I struggle with it too. But being that as it may, I really respect science. But in my study, I think I've come to four different general explanations of how this world came to being. One is what we will call the secular worldview or the humanist opinion of how the world was created, which it was basically created by chance. Certain things came together. Big Bang theory. Whatever you want to look at it, there was certain cosmic activity that occurred that brought about the world and where it is today in its evolutionary tra- uh, uh, path, and it's done that. And I can understand they would believe that. They have a lot of reasons for why they believe that, but they can never get away from what we will call uh, a significant designer of this. And a first cause. They can never go back to the first cause to that. Number two, the second one you're going to hear, and this is the one that was mainly embraced during the Bible days in the city of Colossae in the very book we're studying. They would say that, you know what, this is so complex, we don't understand it. Obviously, 2,000 years ago, they didn't have the science we even have today. They said, a God or God's plural created this. Now, it depended upon how you looked upon the earth. If you looked upon the world as having a lot of natural things go against you, the lava burning you, wiping out your family, if you had problems with this wind or tornadoes or hurricanes, you might look at the world and what's happening, and you would say it must have been an evil God because there's so much evil and tragedy. And you would define a God by how you saw the earth. Or, you live in an area where you didn't have a lot of tragedy by what's happening on planet Earth. Plenty of food, plenty of water. You didn't have the elements come against you. You would then come to the conclusion that a good God created this Earth. So, in any fashion, you created your God based on how you were treated and that defined who your God was. That's a belief system of how things got started. The third way is embraced by some Christians... And that's called theistic evolution. I'm, I'm making it very simple for you. They would say there is a true and only God, and this God wanted the world to be created. And he did it by having a first cause. So he began, it. he jump-started this earth, but from that first cause, that first event, then there was what we would call the evolutionary trail again. And we are where we are today, based on evolution, but it began with God, so they call it theistic evolution. There's too much in scripture, particularly in the book of Genesis, that I cannot embrace that. The fourth one is the one that most scholars that are of Christians that know their Bible but equally understand science as it is would say that there was a creator. He did create this. Most of it was done suddenly. There is some, now I won't call it evolution, but I'm going to call some issues that were that, that, that um, animals and plant life began to evolve or I would say change, I want to say mutate, they begin to move into other directions, but that God did it all suddenly, all at one particular time. Now, we can argue, is there a, a six-day creation? Is there an instant creation? Is there a, he created it, he destroyed it, he recreated it? We could have We can open up that argument if we want to at a later time. But the point I'm making today for this message is the supremacy of Jesus Christ is the one who created all of creation. And so, let's look at it now. He created all things for him. One One commentator said it this way. It was the very being of Christ. In other words, he wanted to have creation in God, and so by that very being, he willed it into existence. He goes on to say it was the love of Christ that moved his heart to create the world, even knowing that the world would fall into sin, and he already provided a sin bearer before the world ever sinned, but he loved the world even before the world fell. The commentator goes on to say it was the knowledge of God that aroused his mind to put this complicated world together in such a unique way that we have a balance of nature. It was the riches of his grace that inside of him would will this world that even with all of its problems that he is stronger, wiser and more omnipotent than whatever this world has. And he still chooses then to recreate this world later on that will be in a perfect state. And then finally, it's the power of his word that energized it, that made it happen. In fact, in scripture, he didn't have to sit back and work and massage and all this to make the world happen. He spoke, boom, in a split second. It was in an existence. That's the power of God. And that's who he was. So it says this world was created by him. He did it. We didn't do this. Then it says all things. That means every single thing in this world was created. Now, when he created this, he did it collectively, which means he had to do a lot of it all at once. But he also did it individually. One writer said, God is as great in the minuteness, that means in the smallness of it, as he is in the magnitude of it all. And so God is in this whole thing, as big as it is and as small as it is. When I flew to Indonesia, and it took me about six and a half hours to fly to Tokyo, and then it took me about another six hours to fly in, um, uh, to Surabaya, when I look at how long we were in the air, traveling at 600 miles an hour, it's, I started to realize how big this earth really is. I got thinking how many miles an hour we were flying, and I was flying over a mile of ocean. And if I took the ocean and I could, I could cut it like a cake, and I could go all the way down to the bottom, I was just thinking what there was in the middle of that one mile stretch. And then I multiplied this by mile after mile after mile after mile after mile after mile after mile how that God in his great magnitude created it. But to do this, he had to have each thing bounce off of each other so that you have a balance of what we have with this earth. So he did it in the magnitude he saw the big picture. But he also could see the littleness of it. But he wasn't just wrapped up in the littleness of it. He was also wrapped up in the bigness of it. This is a big world. It, if, if parents could possibly begin to pray about what I'm about to suggest, seek if, if God is in it for you and your family. I would like to, to cast a, a, a vision or an opportunity before you with this. If there was a way to have your children, when they have a, a, a mind somewhat understanding what's going on, I don't mean like a four or five-year-old, I mean they don't understand, but their world is real small, okay? But as they get bigger, that you would begin to consider taking your kids on trips to show them how big this world really is. There's always that pilgrimage to Disneyland or to Disney World or some theme park, and I'm not totally against all of that, but I'm wondering if you can frame that in the bigness of the reality of the supremacy of Christ when you do it, and if they could see this huge world in light of its plight, they're lost, they need Christ, but also in light of the Creator who made this whole world and how He did it. I'm wondering if that would give our kids a greater appreciation, maybe even a sense of an acceptance of their smallness and that the world doesn't always center just around them and how wide that would give them an ability to communicate a gospel that will transcend only one culture into all other cultures. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just thinking, and maybe you just ask God where you might be on that because God created all things. Then it says they were created. It was an event. And then it says that are in heaven and that are on earth. So that means all the stars and everything beyond the stars that we can't see, It's amazing, some of you that might listen to some of these um, science programs that talk about the um, astronomy that's out there. Astrology is kind of like reading horoscopes, but astronomy. It'd be great if you could take the kids to see some of these these big telescopes where they can see as far as they can see. It is huge. This world goes on and on and on. We're talking millions of light years, and they're just able to scratch the surface, and they're still beyond all of that. And so he created the stuff we can see, the stuff we can't see, the stuff here that's earth, stuff that are in the sky. I believe that he created what is known as invisible to us today because we still don't have a microscope that can see the smallness of it, and we don't have a telescope that we can see the furtherness of it. And yet it's invisible to us, but it's not invisible to God. He's created that. I'm thinking, those of us that are now 58, what they are seeing today, big and small, that they didn't see when I was 10 years old. It was invisible then, becomes visible now, but he created all of that for us. And it goes on and on, and he can make a tremendous case over this. All you need to know is that God, through Christ, is the creator of all of that. Now, how does that relate to you and me? If Christ is a creator of all of this, then isn't it his right to do whatever he wants with that which he's created? You moms and that make food...